So, uh, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome, uh, Mariam Bahed, uh, uh, Green Oma. Uh, welcome to the podcast, and uh, looking forward to uh, discussing your great work. So, for our audience, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and uh, Green Oma. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, assalamu alaikum, everyone. My name is Mariam Bahed. I'm the chair of a, a nonprofit organization called Green Umma that seeks to, you know, develop a, an environmental movement in the Canadian Muslim community or communities because we are a very diverse, uh, diverse Umma. Um, I guess to introduce myself, I'm I'm a passionate lover of, of nature, of learning, uh, of learning about nature. Um, I'm someone who recently graduated from the University of Toronto studying diaspora and transnational studies and anthropology. And in both those instances, I've had lots of opportunity to do research about the environment and its intersection with, uh, you know, equity, diversity, inclusion, and intersectionality. Um, I'm also someone who's been working in community spaces for uh, quite a number of years. I'm young, but since high school, I've been involved in, in my community and doing grassroots organizing, especially related to politics and, and getting out the vote in Canadian Muslim communities. That's great. And, and Mariam, um, with, with uh, this uh, kind of great work you've been doing from, uh, from even your um, high school days, what, what was your inspiration or role models or what were things that influenced you that, that meaningfully inspired you to do the work that you do? Absolutely. It's, it's a great question and one that I love to answer. Um, I've been very privileged to be raised by a, a, a heavily involved family uh, and especially two grandmothers who are both matriarchs and uh, a lover of community involvement. Um, so on my on my dad's side, my dadima, she grew up in apartheid South Africa. And so she was always someone who shared those stories with me of what it was like to live as, as a, an Indian woman in that time and um, the importance of getting an education for her, the importance of being involved in her community and, and of giving back once she came to Canada and to supporting the, I guess, like the, the nascent growth of the Muslim community in Mississauga and in Ontario, which is where I'm from. So on that side, I, I definitely was pushed to always think about equity and justice and a pursuit of lifelong learning um, as well as service. And then on my, on my mom's side, it was a similar story, but uh, this time in Pakistan. Um, and so I have a, a grandmother who, who was an educator and who taught English, English as a second language. And uh, she similarly really believed in the importance of service and of giving back. And her, her career as a teacher was the way of doing that. So those are my two role models. And I look up to them a lot and they're both still around. And so I, I get lots of great advice from the both of them. And and, and yes, yeah, so, uh, the, the social justice and racial equity and but the environment itself, uh, as we know, in the Muslim community, it's uh, maybe on the list of priorities um, right now. Palestine is, is at the forefront, Uyghur uh, rights and, and Yemen and uh, Syria, many, many fronts uh, in terms of social justice and racial equity and uh, many, many uh, issues pertaining to those uh, pressing causes for the Muslim community. But the environment itself, uh, at least here in, in British Columbia, it's uh, in the talking points in, in meetings with the community, uh, the environment uh, has not been referenced as much. And what was the inspiration specifically for the environment? Um, going to look at this existential crisis that faces everybody, what were the, the catalysts for you that, that inspired you to, to do Greenoma? For sure. I mean, 
I think for my generation, thinking about climate change is, is at the forefront. It's really hard to ignore that that is going to be a reality within our lifetimes. Um, but beyond climate change, I also have a deep love and appreciation and gratitude for nature. Uh, once again, going back to my grandparents, my Nana had a, a green thumb. He had a huge, beautiful garden in the backyard, and I was raised watching him treat nature with so much care. Uh, and so, you know, that that was something that always stuck with me. Uh, and especially throughout my university days, I use it as an opportunity to do research in different community initiatives related to the environment. So I did research on community gardens, I did research on um, different like tours and walks that were happening in Toronto to, to bring people to appreciate you know, their urban environments uh, and suburban environments. And so that that was something that has always stuck with me. And when Adel, who is one of my co-founders of Green Umma, came up to me and said, hey, why don't we take our history and our knowledge and experience of, you know, contributing to grassroots organizing in the Muslim community and bring it to the environmental space, it really felt like a calling uh, of, of marrying that passion for grassroots work and that love and appreciation for nature as well as the knowledge that this is one of the issues of our lifetime um, and one that we need to address so that you know we can continue to to engage with the beautiful planet that we have as it is and and in the context as we know it's a climate emergency yes. uh, it, it is an emergency uh, on multiple fronts and uh, with uh, overfishing uh, the plastic pollution that's prevalent all over the oceans around the world, and uh, and then special interests that are stymieing progress in government around the world that are, you know, either in in the meat sector or the forestry sector or the fishing sector, that are that are doing their best with with uh, a lot of resources to to slow down efforts for reform worldwide. And one of the things we discussed in our previous conversation was uh, mental health, where uh, because of the climate emergency is so pressing and to manage your your self-care to, to kind of look at such an overwhelming problem and, and work where you can in your own locality, global to local. So informing that, um, because there's so many diverse topics uh, about the environment and sustainability and renewable energy, uh, where does Greenoma, where did you guys get started? And please talk about the, the initial start of Greenoma and the scope of your work currently. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I mean, we started out of a conversation about how, um, unfortunately, the environmental movement as it, as it is, is not very diverse in Canada. There are not all voices that are being heard. Uh, and as we know through research done by great thinkers like Ingrid Waldron, environmental racism is something that we experience in Canada, where Black, Indigenous, and racialized communities have to deal with additional burdens related to the environment, be it, you know, increased, um, like, dumping areas where they live, be it, uh, you know, not recognizing Indigenous sovereignty and in constructing pipelines, um, be it, even if you look from a global perspective, um, like worse air pollution and in, in underdeveloped developing countries. And so we wanted to make sure that the movement in Canada included all of our voices and all of those perspectives. Um, and we, we were lucky to find someone who, who really supported that, Nature Canada. Uh, and they, they wanted to make sure that we were being brought into that movement. So that's where we started. It was that conversation of not seeing ourselves in the movement uh, and wanting to ensure that 
we were part of it. In terms of where it went from there, we realized there was a, a lot of work that needed to be done on the awareness and education front. There has, of course, been in environmental organizers in the Muslim community and work that's been done, and we really respect that work. Um, but unfortunately, when you have conversations with relatives, they don't fully understand or or perhaps they do understand and they don't know what to do with that information and so we wanted to be a bit of a launching point and address some of those initial questions think about ways that we can practically involve nature and sustainable living and balance with nature into our lives as as that starting point and then from there build up the organization and build up the movement so that it becomes more about um launching muslim youth and launching youth into the environmental movement with a, an understanding that we can actually do something about it with an approach of there are solutions that we can contribute to and we can lead and uh we don't need to have so much eco anxiety there are positive changes that can be made and so that's kind of where that went in terms of what we're doing right now, we're helping develop uh, a curriculum which really, really seeks to educate Muslim youth, but recognize that they're so smart. Like our Muslim youth are change makers already, and we have so much inspiration uh, from them. And so, how do we guide all of their passion and knowledge into uh, an understanding and belief that they can? do something about the environment and they can create green communities and and even from our islamic perspective we are in essence uh, vice regents uh, on this world not only responsible mm -hmm. for uh, muslims and mankind and but the environment itself which is an amanat the trust to us that uh, sure. allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us now that in mind um, you've come up with some workshops and um, other initiatives in Ramadan. Let's talk about the workshops you developed and the, the Ramadan initiative. Yeah, so we actually, we began our organization a couple months before the pandemic hit. Uh, and so we had an entirely different plan for a green Ramadan that was really about going into mosques, speaking to different Muslim nonprofits about how can they change their their efforts in Ramadan to be more aware of sustainability. And that's where we started. Unfortunately, with the pandemic, everything changed. And so uh, we, we, we shifted our vision and decided, okay, well, why don't we engage people online and create a digital community where people can engage in these discussions about the environment and where they see themselves in the environmental movement. Uh, we focused on very practical tips uh, related to water, energy, um, developing a connection with nature and food and food waste. And for each of those um, different focuses, we spoke about why it's important to think about it, uh, what we can do about it, and what, what are other organizations that we could amplify who are working in that space. So that's where we started. Um, recently, we held a conference just a couple months ago where we had you know, great thinkers from all across Canada and even all across North America who could come and speak to the work that they were doing so that you know, our, our Canadian Muslim populations and communities could see great work has been done and this is how I can, I can support it. And that was everything from speaking about local initiatives like Studio 89 and they're a small business that really seeks to integrate 
their principles of sustainability to thinking more at a, a level of what can the ummah do and what are principles in Islam um, that we can draw from that, that really help us engage in this environmental advocacy with the idea of being caliphs of this earth. Absolutely. And one of the key issues, uh, one aspect of, of uh, the environment is, uh, is energy. And uh, with coal being uh, one of the most uh, primary energy sources and the, the shift to solar and uh, wind and geothermal and other renewable energies, um, in terms of these type of existential, like big macro issues, which is uh, shifting our, our, our whole infrastructure economy-wise to, to uh, renewable energy, um, in terms of even electric cars and uh, and many electric car companies, or sorry, and many traditional car companies have created mandates uh, by 2025, 2030. They, they want to shift to electric uh, vehicle uh, production as the primary and to really completely shift from the internal combustion engine to electric vehicles. Now, in terms of that type of education, that, that, that really one of the key issues is energy and energy is really driving the, the carbon emissions and, uh, and, and global warming. Um, it, do you have any workshops to talk about these issues and, and even from the next car purchase to, to really look at these types of sustainable uh, measures in terms yeah, of transportation? For sure. I mean, in our in our Green Ramadan campaign, that was something that we spoke about for, for a whole week. We spoke about how can we change the way that we approach energy as individuals in our lives. But that systemic piece is so important. We know that when when we're seeking to address climate change and our biodiversity crisis, it needs to be something that happens within every single aspect of our lives and systems. That change needs to be um, it needs to happen within governments, within businesses, within all sectors, including the energy sector. Um, it needs to happen when we think about food waste, like these are systemic issues. And so how can we you know, think about that? How can we find ways of taking action on that? Uh, and it's something that we continue as an organization to grow on because when we started out, we, we started with a lot of those very basic understandings of like, okay, um, energy is an important thing to think about and uh, a shift in, in, our, in our country about the use of fossil fuels and coal and moving towards more sustainable forms of energy. Um, we started at a, at a very basic level and now as we think about future Ramadans and possibly think about moving to an adv advocacy space, um, we're thinking about, okay, now how can we take that understanding and use it to impact how our country's politicians are thinking about energy? So like at this moment, awareness and education, and then eventually shifting or complementing that work with uh, advocacy in government and the private sector um, to, to advocate. And just getting back to education, as you know, online, there's a lot of uh, misinformation, disinformation, yes. and, uh, and uh, social media has become weaponized uh, by different parties. And as much as we believe there's a climate emergency, there's a whole section of society that doesn't believe it. And they have their quote unquote facts uh, and uh, conspiracies. Um, so in light of that misinformation and uh, a, a disagreement on the climate emergency by I would say a large uh, population around the world um, and also in our community, uh, obviously sure. these, these are challenges. And, uh, so in terms of the educational workshops, have you, have you considered after the lockdown, perhaps workshops in the massage and, uh, 
and the other uh, communities, like officially just going in into really uh, from a basic level, as you said, when you started, you had a general understanding, but now as you get deeper and deeper, you realize how, how multifaceted and intersectional it all is. Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, at our current stage, it's so hard to think that we'll soon be back in person. It feels like ages away because we've been dealing with this pandemic for so long. But that was actually the initial vision of Green Uma was how can we bring these conversations into our masjids? How can we um, how can we mobilize our imams and, and speaking about this in Friday kutbas? How do we create halakas that are about, you know, environmental principles? And it's something that we'll definitely revisit. Um, but as for the next couple of years, we have really decided to focus on schools, on Islamic schools, but also schools in general, because we know that there are a lot of Muslim youth who are attending like public schools, and we still want to be able to reach them and have support them in having those critical conversations with their peers about Muslims care about the environment, the environmental movement needs to be intersectional, and how can we talk about that? Uh, and so yeah, that's something that we're we're currently planning for both an in-person and for a digital um, digital approach. Absolutely, and and in terms of uh, uh, other important things, as we know, you know, our whole lives we've been taught, you know, don't don't waste water and uh, mm -hmm. eat all the food on your plate and and these type of things. Now, food is something that uh, I think a lot of us don't uh, really think too much about uh, how, how is this water coming to us and, and the different types of food that arrive on our plate, how, many, how much energy was uh, expended to, to bring that piece of steak on our plate where it's um, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of liters of water for just one steer. So in terms of food security and, uh, and just food in and of itself that, uh, that um, as we know, beef, is 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 uh, and cattle uh, and cattle uh, uh, grazing is one of the the biggest causes of greenhouse uh, emissions. What are your thoughts about education, just from even that aspect of, of food, which is a big part of our lives and a big part of the economy and a big part of the environmental emergency? For sure. I mean, this is something that I love to talk about because my mom's a nutritionist. And so I was really raised with uh, like a critical awareness of how can we think about our food systems and the food that we eat and how, uh, you know, the consumer choice really drives industries to, to change. And I think that that's something that that needs to be considered. Uh, I know that jumping right to vegetarianism or veganism feels very daunting in, in our communities, especially because meat can be such a central part of our culture. And I'm not suggesting that actually. I take more of an approach of when you're having your weekly meals, how can you reduce the amount of beef that you eat or reduce the amount of fish that you eat? Because we have to recognize that it is having a negative impact on our world. Um, my family, we try to take an approach of like, we're not cutting out beef entirely, but it's a special occasion thing only. So we'll eat beef if it's like Eid or a birthday. But aside from those occasions, we primarily try to eat, you know, vegetables and there are lots of delicious options for, for, for our vegetarian meals or we try to have um, animals that are that have less of that impact um, including possibly looking for sustainable um, farming so there's so much to think about there and uh, I, I definitely don't I'm not the sort of person who's like okay everyone you have to make this choice you have to become vegan you have to become vegetarian but 
I definitely encourage people to have a critical awareness of like, where is our food coming from? How can we, you know, continue to honor our culture, but at the same time, um, honor the, the impact that we're having on this world and ensure that we are having as much as possible a positive impact. Yeah, and and with meat, uh, there is hadith where Prophet Salah Sunir's meaning talks about eating meat, but not at the extent that we do. Uh, some mm -hmm. of us uh, twice a day, three times a day, and I'm sure the quantity of meat human beings eat today uh, is much more than it was 50, 60 years ago. In entire human history, the amount of variety that we have in fish and meat is 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 so immense and so uh, so many different varieties. Uh, in history, mankind has never had this type of consumption and variety ever. And so because of that, all the diseases we're facing today, cancer, heart disease, and all these things are exacerbated by the food choices. Now, we talked about, you know, how um, food, uh, whether it's uh, uh, overfishing, whether it's uh, uh, cattle, um, let's talk about the role of technology and technological innovations that are coming down to reduce the cost of energy and also the, the new technologies that are coming out to, to, to have even lab-created meats and what have you. So wherever you'd like to start uh, in terms of uh, renewable energy or, or technological innovations to, to really um, combat the, these exist existential issues. What a topic. I mean... You know, I think that we are really lucky to be in a world where there's so much innovation and creative thinking about how, you know, we can redesign our world uh, with the use of tech. I was actually just reading this book called Under a White Sky by Elizabeth Colbert. And it's, it's a great book. Um, and she talks about all the different efforts that uh, we have taken to try and engineer ourselves out of the climate change and biodiversity crisis. And for people who are interested in, in learning about tech, I think I would defer to the expert uh, on that one because you know she speaks about all these different ideas from carbon capture to um, to like how do we address and and you know keep alive certain species who are on the verge of being extinct using our technology and um, using science. And so I, I definitely, I defer to her on that. And uh, I encourage everyone to read that book. It's, it's a fascinating read. Uh, there, there is um, in a place called Squamish, which is near Vancouver, uh, uh, Bill Gates has uh, funded uh, a carbon capture company, which, mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, I was talking to uh, one of the brothers that works for the company. And I, and I said, you know, we're, we're in a province in a city where the, the pollution is not as significant as India or China. And he says, uh, what you don't understand is wind currents, is that pollution comes here because it's, it's, everything's interconnected and the wind currents will, will come here. So I was like, so your technology for carbon capture will capture carbon from here that could come from all over the world. He says, that's exactly it. So amazing technologies. Now, there are technologies, again, uh, the leather industry, which is tied to the meat industry or the cattle industry and, and lab-grown leather lab-grown meat and even this shift to beyond meat and i don't know if you've tried that uh, yes, those, uh, so let, let's talk about even those type of choices uh, where technology is converging on on creating uh, unique innovations where we don't necessarily have to deforest the rainforest uh, for cattle production when we can we can grow our own meat uh, in the lab and uh, and also uh, leather 
Yeah, absolutely. There, there are so many of those options that are available to us, like Beyond Meat is one example, but there are all sorts of uh, companies that are coming up with like new types of um, like vegetarian or vegan meat. And so I think that we are lucky to have that choice. And what I encourage people is to really um, leverage their the power of consumer choice, because by choosing those alternatives, you're sending a message to industry that this is something that you care about. Likely it's because you care about the environment um, or you care about animals or whatever your motivation is. It's sending that signal that we should have more of these options available uh, and that industry needs to shift to consider sustainability. Um, so the more that we use those technologies uh, and the more that we speak out on those, uh, on those different options and recommend it to our friends, the better. And I, I hope that, especially my generation, I know that so many of us are, are taking up those options and uh, we're, we're integrating them into our lives. And so the more we do that, the more we're signaling that industry needs to change. Absolutely. And you brought up something earlier about uh, innovations in farming and vertical farming. So uh, the concept of, of farm to plate and uh, one of the, the ways they're doing that is to bring the, the farm closer to the plate, whereas in, in uh, metropolitan cities like Toronto and San Francisco, Vancouver, where companies are, are, are doing vertical farming where they can, within greenhouses, uh, grow every kind of vegetable and fruit as, as, as one way to um, curb, uh, you know, the, the, the key aspects of the environment are, are also uh, transportation. So if we can cut the transportation costs for foodstuffs and, and other goods uh, dramatically, that, that will reduce greenhouse emissions. And so for sustainable farming, and as you said about your grandmother's green thumb, that these type of initiatives where historically uh, people would grow their own vegetables in, in their backyard. And, uh, and so let's talk about these innovations in, in farming and innovations in food security. For sure. Um, I mean, I am a passionate believer that one of the good uses of our time in the pandemic is to engage in gardening in your backyard, to support community gardening initiatives. I know people who have um, brought hydroponics into their lives because that's becoming more and more available at the individual level. And of course, always supporting our, our local farmers and uh, you know, as often as you can, like going to a farmer's market instead of a grocery store, I, I love to encourage that because absolutely, if you're choosing to, um, to, to get produce or get food that has traveled from a, from a long ways away, it does have uh, a carbon impact that is not so great for our planet. Um, another thing that I really love to, to push people to think about is we have so many expectations for our food, like that it looks a certain way, that it is a certain color. And there actually are a lot of organizations uh, and small businesses that are combating that specifically and, and uh, trying to rebrand like ugly fruits and vegetables and saying, hey, grocery stores actually throw this produce away because it doesn't meet your standard, but let's shift our standard back to eating things that are nutritious, that are sustainable, that are local, and not necessarily the things that just like, seem as though they're the right color or seem as though they fit into your standard beauty. Um, so I love those innovations that are happening within farming, uh, but I also love to, to watch the innovations that are happening and how produce and food is being marketed to the consumer so that we can make those critical shifts in our choices. And, and we're talking about a seismic shift in human behavior and the economy. And so as we know, what drives uh, 
industry is is profits and revenue. And uh, because, um, uh, you know, we have in the United States, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, McVean mm -hmm. New Deal, and to really shift thinking, uh, because right now with this fossil fuel uh, bottom line and major oil companies being the largest companies in the world up until the tech companies became the largest companies in the world, but to, to really shift the idea in entrepreneurship that uh, there is something very significant and profitable to be in, in green industry and green tech. And uh, let's talk about economies uh, moving based on profits and revenues that, 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 that can be attributed to shifting to, to green energy and, 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 and sustainable and renewable uh, innovations and products. For sure. I mean, I definitely touched on this in terms of consumer choice um, and, and, you know, ensuring that we're signaling to industry, to the private sector, to companies that we care about sustainability. That's one important part of it. But the other important part of it is signaling, signaling that to our governments. It's letting it be known that we're making like choices on who to vote for based on the environment. That's a really important thing. And that in response, governments need to be thinking about integrating environmental principles and integrating, you know, a choice to be green and every part of life. And a, a big part of that is the economy. It's, uh, you know, ensuring that they're subsidizing um, certain industries that are more dedicated towards sustainability and making sure that, um, for us, it's it's we're able to afford it because we don't want to perpetuate, and I think this is something that happens, but perpetuate the cycle where um, the wealthy are able to afford the choice of sustainability, and those who are from lower income or middle income families are not able to afford that. That is an issue, um, and so making sure that that sustainable technology is cheaper, more readily available, is something that comes at the forefront when we're designing uh, the Canadian economy. I think that that is really important. So yes, definitely both those paths of, of let's, let's signal to businesses and let's signal to governments that this is the future that we care about and that we want you to create. And, and with this type of advocacy, um, uh, you know, obviously we have uh, the Conservative government, the Liberal government, uh, the NDP, the Green Party, the Green Party, obviously their, their, their platform is synonymous with the environment. Um, and there are, again, some people in government that are climate deniers. Um, in terms of advocating and policy, what, what are your strategies in terms of engaging government um, uh, on behalf of the Muslim community and others? Absolutely. I mean, we are a very new organization. We came about in December 2019. And so just like a little over a year ago. And so we've been spending a lot of our year setting up that groundwork and haven't been able to engage as much as we would like to. Uh, I think that's a, that's a future goal for our organization. However, what we have had the opportunity to do was to engage with Nature Canada. Um, and they helped us develop a connection with Minister Wilkinson and Minister uh, Bernadette Johnson um, so that we can raise the importance of including diverse perspectives as they're thinking about the environment and designing environmental policy. And so we've started to create those conversations. And I think for any other new organization or individual who's just getting started, that is where it starts. It, it starts with that relationship building um, and it starts with developing that trust. Um, and 
you know, with trust comes a greater capacity to challenge. Um, and so I, that's, that's what I encourage everyone to do is like, if you have an idea, even if you're new, because we're so new as well, um, write to your elected officials, let them know that this is something you care about and look to people who are experts on the issues. There are, there are, there's so much research in Canada. There are huge advocacy efforts and organizations who have been doing the work and, uh, and reach out create those critical conversations because there are, there are power in numbers. And, and the multi-layered approach, federal government, yeah. um, uh, provincial government, municipal Absolutely. government, school boards, like right across the board, and then even the private sector. Now, you brought up another point is diverse voices. So it, it, part of the diversity uh, allyship. So although we are the, the Muslim community, but obviously the climate affects everybody equally. And uh, so that is probably the, the most equal form of discrimination in the environment against all of humanity is, is working together with other diverse voices. So let's talk about allyship and uh, alliances with other faith-based and race-based groups and other groups that, that have an aligned uh, value system. For sure. I think allyship is integral. It's it's number one. Uh, when we came into the space, we, we came in with an understanding that there were other organizations doing this work and how do we ensure that we're we're working with them and aligning with them and collaborating with them and co-designing with them. Uh, and so for us, that was reaching out to, uh, you know, Indigenous communities, reaching out to um, like Black and Indigenous organizations like Future Ancestors, um, trying to have those discussions about uh, how can we work together? And I think a big part of allyship for us is, is hearing. It's, it's listening and hearing to what has been done and what people are saying. Because, of course, as Muslims and as, as uh, racialized folks, like we have understandings of some perspectives for sure. But uh, there, are, there are folks who have experiences that we, we cannot pretend that we understand. Like I will never understand what it is like to be an indigenous person in Canada and to experience that level of environmental racism and environmental injustice. And so it is so important to, to do the research, to listen to the voices in that space, to read books. I'm a, I'm a voracious reader. And so I try to read as many books as I can so I can understand those perspectives um, and reaching out to organizations who are also doing the work. And, and where we were at uh, was allyship and uh, the First Nations com uh, uh, community, Indigenous peoples. So, you know, one thing I think people really don't understand, you touched on it earlier, was environmental racism. And uh, it being that you're uh, in, in Toronto and Flint, Michigan is not far where um, the, the, the water treatment plant is, is very, uh, let's just say the water is very acidic and very... Uh, toxic uh, to the residents that are primarily black and, and low income. So let's talk about what environmental racism is and, and how systemic change is because certain uh, uh, communities are more affected by, by environmental issues than others. Absolutely. I mean, environmental racism is basically what happens when um, environmental burdens fall disproportionately on indigenous black and racialized communities. There are so many examples of it all across the world. Um, I think for those who are interested in learning about the Canadian context, there's a great book called There's Something in the Water by Ingrid Waldron. And she wrote specifically about uh, racism in Nova Scotia, including working with black communities. Thing that I would recommend out. 
in terms of examples, it's something that is is so broad. There's everything from dismissing indigenous um, land sovereignty, so constructing pipelines on indigenous land without their consultation. That's an example of environmental racism. Um, having increased environmental burdens in proximity to, you know, indigenous black and racialized communities. And so that could be like creating waste dumps or toxic landfills uh, or factories. Often those are disproportionately close to those communities and um, they suffer from health uh, repercussions from that ranging from you know cancer to asthma um, environmental racism can also happen in subtler ways in terms of how our neighborhoods have been constructed uh, and this is something that's very clear in the U.S. but also happens in Canada as well where you know there is better access to green spaces in communities that are that are white um, into like to more beautiful spaces and that is something that, especially in the pandemic, we know has an impact on mental health. If if you can't access green spaces, urban parks, things like that, you're you're not going to develop that same appreciation of nature. Um, but you also are, are going to have a, a toll because you're not going to have the space to walk through. Um, one last example I'm going to say is that there is a, a safety issue that um, Black folks, Indigenous folks, and racialized communities uh, experience in the environment. So for example, um, there, there, there is like a long history that Black individuals have had to contend with of not feeling like they can be safe in, in rural spaces and in, in nature spaces uh, for so many reasons. And unfortunately, as a result of a lot of violence that used to take place and, and continues to take place in those spaces. So it's also about, you know, keeping that in, in mind and um, considering that everyone has a different relationship with nature and often that relationship has been the result of a long history, um, including like colonial histories and histories of violence. And, and I, I'm actually listening to a book by one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. And, um, and what she was saying is that uh, Black youth because of not having access to parks and after-school sports uh, that are uh, in more wealthier uh, Caucasian neighborhoods. So if, if uh, five or 10 youths are just in an alley talking, they're viewed as a gang by uh, police and disproportionately uh, searched and thrown in prison. And, and so if there's no green spaces or parks and then automatically you're assumed to be in a gang. So it is, uh, again, a form of environmental racism by not having access to environmental uh, spaces uh, to appreciate parks and nature and to really get that uh, that uh, well-being that we get when we are in nature and connecting to nature. So now we're going to go from local to global. And so because we are uh, intersectional and global in everything we're doing, so even if we get things right in Canada, Everything else in the world affects Canada regardless. So one of the reports that came out um, recently that we got from, I believe it was the, the Yakin Institute, was uh, that climate change is going to disproportionately affect Muslim-majority countries in sub-Saharan Africa, in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia. So climate change is going to affect Muslim-majority countries. So in terms of you know, we have climate activists like Greta Thunberg, who's very young, and, and, and other folks. And, and I would say it's almost like a, a reverse mentorship where, where youth leaders probably know more and, and are willing to act more on the environment because you will inherit the world after we're, uh, the older generations are gone. 
So let's talk about global alliances, global partnerships, and and uh, and uh, working globally uh, with alliances to to kind of uh, combat the climate crisis and emergency. For sure, I mean global alliances are critical in this topic and i think you mentioned this earlier but the world is interconnected you know we can do something here that will have impact elsewhere and um that's true for all sorts of things including with our carbon emissions and so yes those global alliances are critical um i also think that one really important thing to note is that innovations are going to be coming from all around the world and it's it's important within Canada to recognize that if there is this great idea about how we can shift our thinking about sustainability and about uh, integrating green principles into our industry somewhere else uh, we should also be thinking about how we can integrate that in our own context um, and I you also mentioned that there are many people who have become global leaders in the space I, of course, love Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and who doesn't, um, but she says so many important things about uh, ensuring that, you know, in thinking about environmental shifts and systemic environmental shifts needs to be integrated at every single level and in every single thing. And her Green New Deal uh, is a manifestation of that. And so looking to those other examples that people are pushing forward and the work that's been done, I think that's so important. Um, yeah. And, and now we, we talked about entrenched uh, well-funded lobbies and uh, one, one um, uh, documentary that really influenced uh, our thinking was Ocean Spiracy, which talks about uh, overfishing where 90% of species uh, of fish around the world are, are, are more or less have been overfished and many are about to go extinct. And then the other aspect is plastic. So plastic being tied to fossil fuels and packaging and rethinking packaging. Um, so there is one thing in the documentary talked about, there is this big campaign about straws, which are 0.00002% of, of plastic waste in, in the ocean. But what we're not being told is 45% of plastic waste in the oceans are these uh, large fishing nets that these major fishing companies use. So in terms of sustainability and packaging, which packaging is, is such a, you know, we take for granted the, the plastic bag or, or the, the, the processed food that we buy, everything is, is packaged. So in terms of even solutions for homes and, and people to, to rethink packaging and rethink uh, plastic, because this is such a detriment and even the clothing we wear with the microfibers and, and uh, the reports that we're reading is that even in the seabed, like with the uh, Great Pacific Garbage Patch is actually a small portion of the actual plastic that's been dumped into the oceans. And a lot of it is now uh, being on coastal seabed. So let's talk about packaging and, and what we can do uh, locally and possibly globally to combat uh, this very, very, very important uh, issue. For sure. I mean, I think Ocean Spiracy was a great jolt for a lot of people into thinking about the repercussions of their choices. Um, and uh, I, I think that for me, and you know, I, I guess this is my bias as an organization that cares about awareness and education, for me, it always comes back to 
critical thinking. It comes back to thinking about what are the choices that I'm making and what are the impacts of that on a system level? Uh, and I think if you follow that thread, like if you take clothing, for example, and you think, okay, where did this come from? What was the company that made it? Uh, what materials was it made? And you follow that thread and you follow that thread, you'll eventually arrive to the conclusion that um, this is how the industry is perpetuating worse packaging. And so you can do that with everything. You could do that with like you could pick up an Amazon box in your home and trace that back to its origin. You can do that with food waste, uh, food waste and the food that you're ordering in grocery stores and trace that back to the origin. And so that's an exercise that I recommend for everyone because it really starts with recognizing that this is a systemic issue and that uh, unfortunately, the choices that we make are, uh, they happen within a greater system that uh, really is biased towards using heavy amounts of packaging. So I, I would I would start there for anyone who's looking to develop, to develop that understanding of why we're talking about packaging and why it's a systemic issue, and then uh, move from there to, to action. And that could be anything from making those individual changes to um, joining in with efforts to, to lobby our, our governments at all levels to, to, to ban plastics uh, or to rethink their relationship with fishing um especially with trawlers because you know i think that there are some forms of fishing that it's possible to to do well like especially with small local fishermen um and with indigenous forms of, of fishing which um does integrate those principles of sustainability and i don't want to don't want to forget those or lump them into that larger uh, critique of of trawlers uh but yeah it, it really comes down to, to thinking about it and then taking action and, and you brought up uh, the trawlers. And for those that aren't aware, there are these gargantuan fishing fleets from Europe, from China, and from other countries that illegally fish uh, in, in different parts of the globe. And, and uh, according to that documentary, whether it's true or not, 90% of the fish caught is illegally fished. So that brings up another very key point is climate refugees. And uh, one of the issues in terms of uh, the Somalian, the Somali pirates was because these fishing trawlers would take all the fish that was part of their livelihoods. So they had to resort to other extreme measures. And then in other cases, because their livelihoods are, 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 uh, are being taken away, they have to uh, go to other countries and other places to uh, to, 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 to create a living. And so climate uh, refugees and the impact of all these uh, aggressive uh, capitalistic, uh, uh, you know, uh, in, in the context of fishing and these fishing trawlers uh, really wreaking havoc on certain uh, uh, countries that, that aren't able to fight back. So let's talk about climate refugees and the impact that that will have, because this will exacerbate, it. according to the United Nations, currently there's 80 million refugees in the world today, and they're predicting by 2030, it's going to be 300 million. So, yeah. and, and, and a good portion are likely to be as a result of climate refugees. So that's a big, big issue, and it's going to be a bigger issue as we move forward. For sure, it's definitely a big issue and uh, we've started to see those impacts and 
they're, they're going to continue to unfortunately rise as the ocean levels rise, especially for populations that live on islands, who live on the coast. They're going to really, really face the impact or people who are even living on, on riverbeds. Like, and, and the impact of that, of course, is going to be that force dislocation and the rest of the world is going to have to figure out how do we uh, accommodate for refugees and, and integrate them into our society because you know, it's, 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 it's a travesty that people are having to face this, this dislocation. Yeah. And so now let's, let's wrap up with some hope uh, for the future. Yes. Uh, we, we talked about a wide ranging number of issues and, and uh, Mariam, you're an inspiration to us because you are uh, coming up with, with this uh, great work with your, your team. So let's talk about hope for the future and, and some positive uh, messaging for the folks at home that it's not all doom and gloom. There is, uh, there is positivity here as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think that there is a lot of hope here in Canada and actually across the world. I think Muslims have really awakened to the importance of our environment and to protecting our environment and engaging in a balanced relationship with our environment. And I think that as, as long as we continue to have those those uh, moments of, of awakening and those moments of recognizing that we do have a deep care and appreciation for our nature and uh, we should be fulfilling our role at Khalif, as Khalifas of this world. I think that there's lots of hope that comes out of that. Um, I also think that there, there's a lot of hope uh, because after last summer, there were so many con uh, conversations about equity, diversity, inclusion that were happening after uh, the, the tragic and horrific murder of George Floyd. But I think that those conversations and that awareness has actually continued to have a positive impact uh, where our government is, is now really considering environmental racism for the first time. And maybe it's not yet at the level of politicians, but at the very least, Nature Canada and some of the bureaucrats have, have started to think about that and how we can incorporate uh, diverse voices. And so I've had a lot of hope just from that. And then the last thing is our youth. I think we could always you know, get so much hope from our youth. And I have a younger sister and the, the, the level of education that they have and knowledge that they have about the environment is, is unprecedented. They, they really, really care about this and they have so much creativity and energy and passion for how to change, uh, how to change our world and uh, how to think about the development of new systems. Um, in terms of where Green Umma fits into that, we're launching our curriculum. Uh, it's going to be a, a, an entire curriculum that will, it's targeted towards, you know, to youth and especially Muslim youth, but it's open to everyone at all levels who are interested in uh, experiencing that journey of why is it that I care about the environment? Why is it that I think about the environment in the ways that I do? And what can I do with that new awareness of myself? And so it really, really centers self-reflection. And then teaches methodology for how we could take action. And so I think that there's also hope that, you know, organizations like us, not to pat myself in the back or anything, but that we are doing that work and, and it's not just us, there are other organizations as well. And, and we would love to uh, share your work in your workshops virtually or in person here in British Columbia. So uh, by all means, uh, I think when we're ready to do that and promote it, we'd be grateful to, uh, to promote that and, and get these workshops started here in BC. For sure. So in closing, and to plug uh, the event that you'll be speaking at that we're all working on together. So uh, in honor of uh, uh, World Environment Day, which is June 5th, and uh, World Oceans Day, which is June 8th, um, Mariam, you'll be speaking on behalf of Queen Oma. And 
uh, and so the purpose of this event, um, we're bringing allies and uh, as a faith-based convener, uh, voices from the Christian community, the Jewish community, uh, academics from uh, their respective fields in forestry and the oceans and other related uh, politicians that, that are supportive of, of this work. So that's gonna be June 5th and June 8th and it's called uh, Saving Our Planet, Faith in Action. And uh, Mariam will be one of our speakers. So thank you, Mariam and uh, looking forward to working with you in the future. Great, thank you for having me.